resurrections and the, the hope that we look forward to in His resurrection that is to come. So uh, this morning we're going to be back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, as I've explained before, we're going through uh, a subsection of the uh, series that I've been doing on the doctrine of worship, and we've answered the who of worship, we've answered the why of worship and the what of worship, and now we're looking at the where and when of worship. And so the last time we studied together, we looked at personal worship and how we worship God through our daily heartfelt obedience to His commands. Uh, and now we're moving to the next where and when of worship, which is family worship. And that's going to take me a little bit of time to work that out. Uh, it's going to take me the next three sermons to work out family worship and, and what I mean by that. But I want to start today with a little bit of an introduction. So we're going to begin where we will for just about every sermon in this part of our series by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through uh, 15, but we're also going to be in Genesis chapter 1. So if you want to uh, flip over to Genesis chapter 1, put your bulletin there, and then flip back to Deuteronomy 6, we're going to be going there uh, at some point during the sermon today. But as we begin today, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you at this point in our service to hear from you. We do not come to hear from Nathan Skipper or from some famous preacher of times gone by, but we come to hear from your word. So, Father, I pray that you would work through me, your clay vessel, to pour out the glories of God to these, your people. Father, I pray that we would be reminded of our, our calling, a very simple calling that we have as Christians and as people who are made in the image of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Father, I pray that we would be reminded of our calling to be diligent, to teach the law of God to the next generation. And Father, that we as individuals would take that calling seriously, and we as a church would take it seriously as we seek to be obedient to you in worshiping you in every part of our lives. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So like I said, before we can get into answering the where and when of family worship, I need to address some challenges that we as Christians or Christian families face as members of our society. And let me say to start with that my sermon today is going to be pretty frank. Uh, somebody complained that I stepped on their toes last week. Just just wait. Uh, <laughs> so uh uh, it's going to be pretty frank, and we're uh, going. To, I'm going to draw some conclusions that to you might seem a bit radical, but I believe that we are at the state of in our society and in our culture where we need some radical changes. I think you all can agree with me that we are not in the society that some of you grew up in, and we're not in the culture that some of you grew up in. And in order for us as Christians to impact our culture in a way that is going to have meaningful change, we as Christians have to take a radical stance. And so what I want to propose today is going to come across as uh, radical, maybe in some ways it's going, not, it's going to create more questions than answers. I love questions. Feel free to ask me after the service, now what about this particular situation? I'd be glad to talk with you as much as you want about what I mean in these particular points that I make today. But 
I want to bring up some, some radical things that we as Christians can do with respect to our families that we need to be doing with respect to our families because of the state that we find ourselves in in our society. And what I, what I have to say comes from two deep and long-standing pains that I have endured as a member of our society, and I'm sure you have as well. First, you would have to be blind not to notice the cataclysmic shift that has occurred over the last 50 years with respect to the institutions of marriage and family. Just this past week, in a speech before Congress, Representative Cory Bush referred to mothers as birthing people. Now, when she said that, it's created a firestorm on Twitter among conservatives who were amazed at the terminology. They couldn't believe that someone would refer to mothers as birthing people. And it required an equally uh, vehement response from liberals who were surprised that conservatives found a problem with that terminology at all because in saying that there are two genders, conservatives are being exclusive to have heteronormative gender roles. These are words that we all have to know now, unfortunately, when it is obvious that there are innumerable genders beyond male and female. You know, 50 years ago, terminology like this would have been absurd on its face. But the slow fade that has occurred over the last 50 years from the second wave feminism of the 1960s to the abortion debate of the 1970s to the gay rights protests of the 1980s to the marriage equality battles of the 2000s, that all has led to a world in which the most fundamental aspects of an ordered society are questioned. The most basic things like male and female are not the same anymore. They are not even the same words that we use anymore. And woven in between the lines of all of these seismic cultural changes are individual losses that we as Christians have experienced. You know, mingled in with the cultural movements of feminism and sexual liberation are real-world consequences that you and I have seen in our own families as the rise of divorce rates have, have happened and as single-parent families have become a more and more popular uh, family norm, even within the church. Faithful Christian fathers and mothers now dread a different version of the talk, one that doesn't involve just talking about sex but sexual identity. I mean, I have to explain game commercials now to my kids because there's a gay couple on a game commercial, a, a, a commercial for laundry detergent. Parents watch as their teen children move off to college and become sympathetic to and then indoctrinated in unbi unbiblical views of human sexuality, marriage, and the family. And with these shifts in the culture and their inevitable impact on the church, Christians have responded in one of two ways. One response has been to pull away from the culture and establish a, a separate baptized culture for the church. But the far more popular response from Christians has been to engage with the culture, in particularly with 
the avenue of politics. Beginning with Ronald Reagan and the rise of the silent majority under Jerry Falwell, evangelicals have sought to, uh, with each new administration, to change culture by electing presidents who align with our values, with the ultimate hope that we can replace the Supreme Court and in doing that to stem the tide of the moral decay in our country. But consider this, over those same 40 years since 1980, um, conservative presidents have held the office 24 out of the 40 years between 1980 and now. That is 60% of the time. And yet, society has continued its moral decline without even the slightest bit of evidence of abatement. As my friend Rob Fawcett, the pastor at First Presbyterian in Greenville, likes to point out, uh, you know, evangelical involvement in politics seems to have the opposite effect of what was intended. The trouble that I find with the evangelical obsession with politics is that we have found in politics a convenient scapegoat. I've heard Christians blame the moral decay of the country on everything from the lack of prayer in schools to the relaxed disciplinary rules for teachers to the liberal Democrats in Congress. But you know who I never hear Christians blame about the moral decay of our country? Christians. I never hear us blame ourselves for the fact that we have also been caught up in this tide of cultural shift. We match the culture with every little change. We allow the culture to infiltrate our lives, infiltrate our marriages, infiltrate our families, and we are fine with the changes until we see something that we don't like in our children or in our grandchildren. And then, oh, woe is me, it's the problem of those Democrats in Congress or it's the problem of the lack of prayer in school when all the time we were asleep at the wheel with respect to our own families. This morning, I want to propose another way that we as Christians can impact our culture and shape it for good. It's a way that involves more than just voting. It's a, it's a hard way. It requires living in this world, but not of it. Yet it is the way that God has ordained. So let's begin by reading our text together from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 15. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, God's word says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, 
and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is uh, the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So this morning I have one point that I want you to get. It, it's not alliterated much, and so it's not that difficult for you to follow. But there's one point that I want to focus on from this text today. I want you to see that God's purpose for the family is the expansion of his glory through a world that worships him. God's purpose for the family is the expansion of his glory through a world that worships him. Now, if you pay close attention to the verses that we just read, you'll notice two movements. First, in verses four through nine, Moses exhorts the Israelites to diligently teach the law of God within each and every family in Israel. Parents are charged to talk about the law all the time. You'll notice there's this great hyperbole that's there. Uh, You're to talk about it when you lay down and when you rise up. Inside the house, outside the house. On a road trip. In the bed. Early in the morning. And they're also to teach the law diligently, so diligently that it is if they have written it on their bodies. It's as if it's on their hand and on the frontlet of their eyes. And it's as if it's written all over their house that when you walk in, there's scripture on the doorpost of your house and on the gates and all over the house. You've taught it so diligently that you can't get away from it. And second... In verses 10 through 15, Moses turns to the reason every parent should do this. Now Moses knows that the Israelites are about to march in and carry out great victory over the promised land. And they're going to inherit, as he says, vineyards you didn't plant, cisterns you didn't dig, houses you didn't build. You're going to inherit all of the wealth of these pagan lands. You're going to inherit great prosperity. And the risk that they have in doing that is that all of this prosperity could cause them to forget the mighty works that God did to deliver them from Egypt. He knows that they will get comfortable and in their comfort, they will begin to think that they earned the land that they have. They earned it through their might or through their worthiness. So if the generations that come after Moses are to remember Parents must be faithful to teach their children the law. They must be faithful to remind them of what God did in Egypt. They must be faithful to teach them the Ten Commandments, which Moses just expounded in in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. And rooted in this point that Moses makes is the principle that is found in the law itself. To see that, flip back with me to chapter 5, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. This is a popular commandment of the Ten Commandments. And it says, Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, 
and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, this is a passage that every parent loves and every child hates to hear. You know, right? If you were a child, I mean, you all were children, but uh, at one point. But when you were a child, you probably heard your parents say, now the Bible says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long, right? And, and as a child, I remember just rolling my eyes like, oh, great, here it comes. You know, if I want to live long, I got I to gotta be obedient. I got I to gotta obey my parents. But we typically misunderstand this commandment. We read it to say that the child who is obedient will have a long life. But there's a greater concern in this commandment. I want to suggest that this commandment is directing us towards a broader principle in the law. And that is, obedience to the law of God ensures that, his, that God's people will be sustained in the land that they are given. Notice that the concern of this commandment is so that the the command says it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, that line there is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament with respect to a number of laws, particularly as it relates to the Sabbath, that there's this principle in the law that God Uh, that if you are obedient to the law, then you will prosper in the land that God has given you. So when the Israelites were to, if the Israelites were to remain in the land and prosper in it, they could only do so by remembering and obeying the law of God. And children must honor and obey their parents so that they might continue in that land. So as the Israelites obeyed God, the land would prosper. But when they didn't obey God, the land would wither. And as they proclaimed the excellencies of the one true God, the Gentiles would be drawn to Jehovah. When they bowed down to other gods, though, the same Gentile nations would lead them away in chains. So we find that the purpose of God for Israel was that He might be glorified through them, starting and ending with the faithfulness of each and every family in Israel. Now this this principle actually starts way before Israel. In fact, what God is doing here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is simply a recapitulation of the first commandments that He ever gave to mankind back in Genesis chapter 1. So flip back with me to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 26 through 31. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that, uh, thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So here we find God, that God makes man and woman in his own image. And there are three ways that mankind is to bear the image of God to the world. There are three things, three commands that God gives to Adam and Eve right here at the beginning of the book. They are to be fruitful, they are to subdue, and they are to have dominion. Now, chief among those three commandments, you'll notice in verse 28, chief among those commandments is the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I say that it's the chief of all those commandments because the commands to subdue and to rule can't happen if there are just two people. In order to bring God's rule to bear over the whole of creation, Adam and Eve would have to bear children. They would have to raise their children to know God and to obey His commandments. They would have to teach their children to worship God through their work and their rule. Brothers and sisters, this cultural transformation, uh, this is the cultural transformation that God intended. The world changes culture through subtraction either by shaming everyone into the same beliefs to, as we see in our own society or by outright genocide of a whole people group as we see in China. But God's purpose is to form culture through addition. With Christian parents having babies and raising them in the admonition of the Lord. The world changes culture through power using whatever means necessary to gain a leg up on the political opponent, even if it means compromising the principles that you claim to hold. But God's way of forming culture is through the simple faith of a child as he sits on his father's knee and learns the ways of the Lord. Psalm 127 verses 3 through 4 says that children are a heritage to the Lord. And then the psalmist uses this analogy in which he says that children are like arrows that a warrior uses in battle. Now think about that analogy. Children are like arrows that we shoot out of a bow. How is that relevant to Israel and to the church? It's relevant because the only effective way to win the culture war is to raise a family. The only effective way to change culture is to raise your children, your grandchildren, your brother and sister's children, the children of the church in the admonition of the Lord. The only way to impact the culture is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That is the way that God has ordained for influencing and changing this culture for his glory. Now, to do this, church, 
we have to change. We have to stop speaking, first of all, of children as though they are a burden. And we have to start treating them like the blessings that they are. Now, for many generations now, we Christians have bought into the same philosophy that began back with the early 20th century secularist when we say to our young men and young women, now don't get married until you're what? Ready, right? Or we say, don't have children until you're, quote, ready. Or don't have too many children until you're ready. But now I've, I've been through all those stages and I can tell you I was never ready for any of them. <laughs> Still not. We had Eden, when we first had Eden, it, it was the most beautiful thing. And if you, had, if you have had children, you know what I'm talking about. You just trans, translate immediately on the spot to being a father. You go from not knowing anything about being a father to all of a sudden you're a father. And it's a beautiful thing. But it's scary too. And I was not ready. I wasn't ready for Eden to scream for three months straight. <laughs> I wasn't ready for Logan to have uh, RSV and to be in Children's Hospital on, Chris, uh, on the December the 23rd and not know what was going to happen to my nine-month-old son. I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready to leave the hospital and not be able to take my child home with Micah because he had jaundice. And I didn't know how on earth to be a father to a child that's 45 miles away from me. You're never ready to be a husband or a wife or to be a father or a mother. But we have to stop talking about children. And I hope you recognize the way that we say that, the way that we say don't do this till you're ready, is it puts uh, something else before the most important things that we can be as a human. When we say don't have Children, until you have a career, we're saying that career is more important than children. Don't have children or don't get married until you've gotten this level of education is saying that your education is more important than your marriage. Now, I understand the generations that came up with that idea were concerned that if you didn't have wealth and you didn't have an education and you didn't have these things in line, then you wouldn't be ready and you would end up in divorce. But how has that worked out for us? It hasn't worked out all that well, has it? Doesn't seem to have worked. So what we need to do instead is to prioritize the things that God prioritizes. The first thing that God establishes in the book of Genesis is marriage. And the second thing that is predicated on that, he establishes in the family. God values those things far more than he values your master's degree. So be... We need to change the way that we talk about marriage and family. Marriage is a blessing. It's the first institution that God established. It is good. And you will never be ready for children. But children are a blessing. We have to stop talking about them as though they are lesser priorities than money or career or education. 
And in the church, we have to treat children like they matter too. If we're going to see this church grow and prosper for years to come, we must be about the task of raising the next generation. This means that life will be messy because it always is with kids. You know that. There will be holes punched in the walls back in the fellowship hall. There will be loud noises that we can't explain at various times during the worship service. But it's a good messy. Do not let your peculiarities about food in the sanctuary or crying babies during the worship service be a reason that a child is turned away from the kingdom of God. And to do this, parents, we have to change too. Young men and women, you need to have children. And I know this is going to be a radical statement, but you need to have a lot. You need to be diligent to raise them in a Christian home, to raise them in church, to raise them to know the Lord. Some of you might be thinking, but I can't have children or uh, uh, I've stopped having them. So what am I supposed to do? Well, if you can't have children, then adopt. There is no more beautiful picture of God's grace than the adoption of a child. And even if you can, can have children, you can still adopt. There's nothing wrong with a, a family of three or four or five going out and adopting another child to bring them into the fellowship of that family. But if you can't adopt, then foster. There are, fam- there are children in this county right now who need a home because their family has broken down. And we as Christian men and women, Christian families, could easily take them in through the foster care system. If you can't foster, then pour every extra moment of your time into your nieces and nephews and the children of this church and and wherever you can find to invest in the children of our society. Teach children Sunday school. Volunteer in VBS. Aunts and uncles and grandparents, we have to change too. You know that this society is in desperate straits. And I hate to break it to you, but watching Fox News and bemoaning the state of the world, it ain't going to cut it anymore. Just because you have raised a family and done your duty done what you think you should have done in this society, doesn't mean that you are done with family. You have a responsibility to your extended family, but you also have a responsibility within this congregation. The young men and women of this congregation, they need you. They need your wisdom. They need your help. They need you to teach so they can be taught. They need you to love their children. They need you to invest in the next generation. You might be retired, but you're not retired from the kingdom of God. I hate to break it it to you. God's purpose for His glory still starts and ends with the family. Where the family goes, so goes the church. Where the family goes, so goes the nation. If we are to be a people who delight in, in the worship of our God, we must value 
the family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking that you would bless our families. Lord, we know that we so often put other things before them, even our careers and money and our education and our recognition among men. Lord, the children of our families, the children of our church are the priority that you have called us to. Father, give us a sense of urgency. Lord, it is an urgent time in our society. We have to stop being influenced by this culture and the philosophies of this world and instead value the things that you value. Value the uh, prosperity that comes through uh, children, through the next generation going forth and being uh, culture makers as they live the Christian life for the next generation. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to the simple things like having children and raising them in the admonition of the Lord and to investing in families and, and the lives of the children of this church so that we might see this country change for your glory, not because we voted the right way or because we were involved in the right party, but because we put the time in to raise the next generation. Father, bless us as a church as we seek to do this. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.